This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the MomWell Podcast. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sharon Maisel, author of Bite Size Parenting, to the show. Sharon is an internationally recognized parenting and pregnancy expert. She's an author, journalist, speaker, parenting coach, and a mom of four with over 25 years experience in the parenting field. She's also co-authored several of the What to Expect books that so many of us have come to learn on. She's passionate about sharing digestible, accessible, and practical information with parents to help cut through the noise of information overload. So many of my clients experience anxiety or find themselves falling into perfectionism. And when that happens, they often feel paralyzed by the amount of contradictory information out there. It can be almost debilitating to make choices when you feel like you have to do everything perfectly, but everywhere you turn offers different advice that may or may not work for you and your baby. We often end up not trusting ourselves to make decisions, instead leaning on technology or social media to answer our questions. This cycle can leave us with a real lack of confidence in our own parenting ability. But if we can break that down to the essential information and learn what our baby needs based on their individual cues and temperament, we can make choices that feel right to us and protect our own mental health in the process. In this episode, Sharon and I unpack hunger cues, sleepy cues, and how to tune into your baby as an individual so that you can parent in a way that feels right for you. Before jumping in, let's hear our iTunes review of the week. This review comes from Catherine Mummy of Two, and it's titled, My Go-To for Connection. In a world where sometimes it feels like we're doing this motherhood thing all alone, I love listening to this podcast knowing other mothers are struggling with the same things. It provides some sense of connection, and I'm so thankful for it. I definitely look forward to new episodes. Thank you so much for taking the time to leave this review. I'm so glad that you feel more seen and heard as a result of knowing that you're not the only one going through these experiences. I truly love hearing your feedback, and I take your suggestions to heart when choosing guests for the podcast. So in many ways, your feedback helps to curate this show. Thanks again for taking the time to leave that review. Now, let's get to my conversation with Sharon Maisel, author of Bite Size Parenting. The postpartum period is a major transition in your life. Overnight, you went from being able to care for yourself to having a little baby rely on you for every need. Sleep deprivation, crying, uncertainty in your parenting choices, these can all take a toll on your mental health. While baby blues are normal and will resolve on their own in a few weeks, many moms suffer from more. If you find yourself irritable, depressed, anxious, experiencing loss of interest in the things you used to enjoy, or simply feeling unlike yourself, you could be experiencing postpartum depression or anxiety. It might be time to seek help. Our qualified maternal mental health specialists are here to support moms across Canada and the United States. You shouldn't have to cope alone. Our mom counselors and postpartum therapists are ready to support you. Find out if we serve your area and book a free 15-minute virtual consultation at momwell.com slash booking. That's momwell.com slash booking. Welcome to the MomWell podcast, where we're committed to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host, registered psychotherapist and founder of MomWell, Erica Jossa. 
At MomWell, we know that motherhood is hard, but care shouldn't be. We're committed to providing you with knowledge, tools, and support to navigate the challenges of motherhood. Our mission is to put moms back on the priority list and empower them to create a mental wellness toolbox free from judgment, fear, and shame. On the show, we'll be discussing topics such as postpartum depression, identity loss, the mental load of motherhood, and more. We'll be joined by experts, moms, and professionals who can offer advice, practical tips, relatable stories, and honest conversations. Here at MomWall, we believe that when a mom is well, a baby is well. So join us as we discuss the topics that matter to you with experts who get it. Together, we can redefine motherhood and change the way moms are treated. Sharon, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I was reading your book in prep for this with both the visuals and just all the helpful information, and I can't wait to dive into today. It's such a important conversation we're going to have, especially for those new moms and parents that are just finding their footing. So I'm excited to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Erica. I'm so uh, thrilled to be here to talk about my new book, Bite Size Parenting, and on lots of the questions that new moms have because they do tend to have a lot of the same questions and we're here to help. You have been in the parenting space for like 25 years or so, you said. And I mean, there has been a surgeons lately in parenting platforms, but you come from like some of the OG parenting platforms, I feel like. Like you've been doing this and been sharing information and writing for such a long time. How did you get started in the parenting space? I feel like it's more common these days, but you and the What to Expect brand and, and a lot of parenting books kind of paved the way for platforms like this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I actually, uh, my background is as a journalist. I used to be a television uh, writer and producer for Nightly News. And when my oldest child was born, I realized that it was a little difficult to be doing Nightly News and coming home at 11 o'clock at night with a newborn. So I left that world and started writing. I entered the parenting world just by default. Uh, by the time my second child was born, I have four children. So by the time my second wow. child was born, I was like, gosh, I, I can do this. I'm living it. And I'm a, a journalist. I'm a researcher and I'm a writer. So I can marry the two. I joined the What to Expect team and was involved with the books and the, eventually the website and the app. I did that for 21 years. And then in 2020, actually right before the pandemic, I moved on to start my own parenting world uh, brand. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, really, I guess, fortuitous time for maybe not the world, but for me, because I was starting on social media and all of a sudden everybody was locked down and no one could leave okay. the house. Yeah. And new moms and dads were thirsting for information and community and help along this journey. And so um, my social media took off. I marry infographics, a lot of um, graphics with information, and it became something that really resonated with new parents. And as I was thinking about what am I going to do with this, uh, you know, with the wealth of information that I have with my research and writing background? So I realized that what new parents need is the information, but in a digestible format, because mm. there is so much information out there, right? You can Google anything. Mm -hmm. You can read blogs. You can speak to your doctor. You can read huge books that are out there. There's tons and tons of information. But often what happens is when there's too much information, it gets so overwhelming and it stresses new parents out. And in a way, too much information is as if there's no information at all. So I really sought out to create a digestible, 
easy to understand, easy to access, actionable book that gives parents the freedom to choose what they want to read, when they want to read it, learn the information, how they want to learn it. And I do that by giving you, I call it like a choose your own adventure. You can, if, if it's two o'clock in the morning and your baby woke up and is screaming and you don't know what to do, you can go to my quick overviews that is illustrated, adorably illustrated, and you can get your quick tips, one, two, three. And then maybe the next morning when you've slept a little bit, maybe an hour or two, and you have a little more time, <laughs> you can read my closer look sections. And that's where I have a deeper dive, more nuance, more detail, more information, more how, why, when, so that you can really learn and feel more empowered so that the next time your baby is crying, you have the strategies at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the structure of the book that it's broken out in the stages that you'll be going through with your child. I love the visual then with the bit more of a deep dive that we wouldn't necessarily get on like social media. And I just think about being such an exhausted, tired new parent, having both of those being so helpful because like you said, sometimes I only have a couple of minutes to be like, wait, is this a hunger sign or is this not? Like, what am I dealing with here, right? And then maybe for the things that I'm struggling with more, do that deeper dive. So I think that the book really achieved that and I, I really enjoyed going through it. There were some things that stood out to me that I've pulled for our conversation today. And this is maybe off the heels of some of the conversations I've been having more recently about, um, you know, maybe this being the most anxious generation of parents because of marketing and gear and the state of the world and the stream of news and all the things that we're exposed to, that there seems to be a real lack of trust in ourself or lack of confidence and a shift towards needing reassurance from things like technology or other experts or, you know, we feel like we have to be an expert in everything individually ourselves. So we kind of lose the, not instinct, because I think that these are learned skills over time, but I feel like we're losing the trust that we can evaluate these things for ourselves and understand our baby and respond appropriately. So I know we're going to go through some of that today, but is that your experience at all, that parents are just really feeling like a lack of confidence almost? A hundred percent. You really make a, a very good point. And I also have seen this shift where there is, again, so much information that we as parents start to lose trust in ourselves and that innate instinct that you just spoke about mm. that really is there. Because when you hear competing recommendations or competing thoughts, sleep train, don't sleep train, baby led wean, mm. don't baby led wean, start with allergens, don't start with allergens, bathe this way, don't bathe that way, use a swaddle, don't use a swaddle. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Then you start to think, well, what should I be doing? Right. And you also mentioned technology and um, gadgets. And there's so many products for new parents. Again, that feels overwhelming. Do I need this product? Probably not, but everybody else is buying it. Everyone else has it on their baby registry list, so I must need it. Hmm. And that erodes some of the confidence that we have in ourselves, that new parents have in themselves, when really it's not necessary, right? Meaning that the gadgets aren't necessary, the too much information is not necessary. And if we yeah. could just drill back down to the essentials, which is what I've tried hmm. to do in, 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 in bite-sized parenting, if we drill down to the essentials, then we can get the information that we need without it being in an overwhelming format and then be able to choose for ourselves based on our personalities, our baby's temperaments, what feels right for us, and then implement that as a parent and then feel good about parenting. 
Mm-hmm. So when, when I say that, I'm not talking about health and medical and safety issues, right? Mm-hmm. When the recommendations are to put your baby to sleep on the back with no blankets or pillows or bumpers in the crib, of course, that's what we should be doing. That's what's safe. But when we're trying to decide between which bottle to buy, mm-hmm. or should my baby use a pacifier or not, or what first food should I be giving my baby? Yes, there are recommendations, but it really doesn't matter which choice you make. And what's more important is to choose what makes sense for you and what feels right for you, because you will be the best parent for your baby when you feel good about parenting Mm. your baby. And you'll do that by learning and understanding what feels best for you and your baby. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I operate in a space uh, daily with people who are up against, whether it's birth trauma they've been through and sort of PTSD and hypervigilance over their baby, or it's just uh, maybe experiencing postpartum anxiety. And so there is a real drive for certainty. And so these, you know, movement monitors and the baby monitors and all the little gadgets we can use feel like they would provide some reassurance. But one of the things I was so pleased to see going through your work in prep for this interview is that teaching parents the cues of some of the important ones that we're going to go through, like hunger and sleepy and all of that, is empowering them with the information and skills that they need to be able to attune to and seek that reassurance in their own self and with their baby and with their relationship with their baby, rather than having to depend on this other object or this other thing for that reassurance. And I just think that's such a powerful set of tools to have and to be empowered to build and carry with you as a parent. Absolutely. You know, the, you, you mentioned the sleep monitors or the breathing monitors, and studies actually show that instead of reassurance, they often, because of false positives or false negatives, they create more stress and more anxiety mm. in parents. And that's why they're usually not recommended by most experts. Because we like to be in control, right? As, as humans, we like to be in control. We don't like uncertainty. And when it comes to our kids, we really want to be able to say, I have a handle on everything. But those types of technologies, they, they give us false reassurance. And I want parents to be able to trust what is natural for them, but also to trust creating that relationship with their babies so that they do become attuned to the cues, to the signs, so that they will say, oh, I know exactly what my baby needs right now. Now, I will say as a caveat that it's not a perfect system, right? There will be times when your baby is crying and you will have no idea why your baby is crying. Mm -hmm. You've tried all the regular things and your baby's still going to cry. And you know why? Because babies cry. That's their way Mm -hmm. of communicating. And sometimes they don't even know why they're crying. But that also is okay. We expect babies to cry. We want our babies to cry. We would be more worried if our babies weren't crying. And so it's about finding that delicate balance between learning your baby, learning your baby's cues, And then also understanding that your baby is not a robot and you are not a perfect parent because there is no such thing as a perfect parent, but you are the perfect parent for your baby at that moment. And you will figure it out. There'll be lots of trial and error, but the more you understand your baby, the more time you take to learn your baby and learn your baby's cues, the better able you will be to then respond to your baby and be, let's say, right most of the time or figure it out most of the time. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. 
That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com slash momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell. Want to get smarter about your health but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes me reflect back on my three boys when they were young. And I mean, with undiagnosed postpartum anxiety, for sure, the first time around, also mixed with a colicky baby who later we found out had a peanut allergy and whether that was a factor or not, who knows. But lots of reflux, lots of just crying and issues and a lot of just anxiety on my part, which maybe made everything feel so much more overwhelming. And then thinking about having navigated that and like the confidence I built with each child. Because when I stepped into parenthood for the second time, I was like, everybody should experience this type of parenthood where like now I feel like I've got a bit of a footing in this role. And it was a completely different experience because of that confidence to say, oh, that's a fuss cry. Like I'm coming. You can just wait a second. And then you know, being able to just decipher and know where as a first-time mom, especially one who is very anxious, being overly responsive and maybe over-parenting because of just feeling like I had no idea what I was doing, right? And I think that's a common thing we go to is we sort of over-parent or hover or over-soothe or do just all the things because we want so badly to take care of them and to do it right. But yeah, I think it's a mixture of also temperaments too and sort of the experience that plays out. Yeah, for sure. It, you know, I had the opposite experience. My first baby was an easy baby. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm an amazing parent. I got this in the bag. I'm doing everything right. And then number two comes along and she cried a lot. And it was harder for me to discern what she needed. 
And then I realized every baby is different. So I'm the same, but a different mom for each baby because of I've learned experiences. But every child is different, same gene pool. Yeah. But, you know, it's going to be trial and error every single day. And understanding that this is just who this child is and a baby is a baby is a baby will, again, reduce some of the stress and that overwhelm because we will not always be able to figure everything out the second that we're faced with a challenge. So it may take a minute or five or 10 or three days. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the learning process. And if we give ourselves grace as parents to say that we're not going to be able to hit it on the nail every single time and our babies will be okay. Mm -hmm. Our baby, even if our baby is hungry and we let them cry for two extra minutes because we haven't figured it out yet or we got them in for a nap a little later, it's okay. Our babies will be okay. They're very resilient. And that's a, a message that's really important for moms and dads to hear that you can't really do anything wrong. You'll figure it out. You can do a lot right. But as you're figuring it out, things may not be perfect. And that's really okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we feel like they're so fragile. And again, there's this like perfectionist mothering myth that we have to do everything right, that we feel so much pressure in all even the little moments that they carry such weight. So I think it's such an important reminder that there is room for us to learn here, right? And so one of the things that comes up with clients who have postpartum anxiety is knowing when baby is getting enough and all around all the hunger and all the fullness stuff. So why don't we start with like hunger cues? I saw a baby just bopping away at its mom's chest the other day. And I was like, oh, those years of just oh, so sweet and also exhausting. But how do we know when our baby is hungry versus if it's some other cry or need that they have? Yeah, it's a great question. And there are definitely some clues that babies will give us, and which is great. In the newborn stage, right, those first eight weeks, let's say, we want to make sure that even if our baby isn't showing those signs, which I'll talk about in a second, we want to make sure that we're feeding our babies every two to four hours. Mm. Um, lots of newborns are very sleepy, and sometimes they'll sleep through feelings of hunger, and then they won't show those signs. And so it's important that we are getting regular feedings in. But we also want to be feeding on demand. We'll hear that a lot. You know, your parents will say, or you'll hear from experts or doctors, you know, feed on demand, feed on demand. And, and parents will say, well, how do I know when my baby is demanding to be fed? And that's when we want to look for those hunger cues. And, and I like to, to break them down into three types. There's the early hunger cues, the active hunger cues, and then the late stage hunger cues. Okay. So the early hunger cues are going to be a little hard to discern, um, again, with more practice. And as you get to know your baby more, you'll, you'll see them more often. So things like licking the lips or smacking the lips or opening and closing the mouth, that's a baby starting to learn his or her own hunger feelings and his way of communicating, her way of saying, hey, mom, dad, I need some food now. Um, another early hunger sign would be sucking um, on the fingers or on the hand, or if you're holding your baby, sometimes your baby will start sucking on your nose, right? They'll, they'll suck <laughs> on anything. And that's often an early hunger cue. An active hunger cue, which is usually when we'll see, um, when we'll start noticing it as parents, is a little more fussiness, um, squirming. The baby will start squirming, sniffing um, around, as you mentioned. Some babies will do a lot of fast breathing, like, <laughs> you know, they're starting to look for their food source. There's also the rooting reflex, which we can elicit by touching the baby's cheek and the baby will then turn to the side looking for the breast or the bottle. But sometimes babies will do that on their own. And as you said, like 
snuggling into the chest. They're just looking for that nipple. And mm -hmm. um, so that's a great sign to look for. Not all babies will do it all the time, but that's definitely a sign that your baby is getting hungry. And then late hunger cues will be when your baby starts getting a little more frantic, moving her head back and forth frantically, and then, of course, crying. Mm. And crying will be a late hunger, uh, late stage hunger cue. And ideally, right, and this is ideally, we want to be able to get our baby feeding, uh, whether you're breastfeeding or bottle feeding, before the baby starts crying, because it's much more difficult for a crying baby to latch on and suck efficiently when um, he or she is crying frantically. So the ideal is to get the baby fed or feeding before the late stage hunger cue happens. Now, that's the ideal. And in the real world, it's not going to be that way always. First of all, you may not be always available at the beck and call of your baby. You might have to warm up the bottle. You might have to get to a place where you can start nursing. You know, life gets in the way. And so if you get to the point where your baby is at that late stage hunger cue, that's okay. That's fine. You know, and, and we'll, mm -hmm. or if you can't mm -hmm. figure it out before the crying starts, it's also okay, but it gives you the practice to start saying, okay, my baby's hungry now because he is just frantic. What clues did I miss? Mm -hmm. And then the next time around, right, two or three hours later, you get to look for them again. And when you know what the clues are, you can start looking for them earlier. So that's why information is so powerful because you now can say, huh, I didn't know that uh, sniffing is a, a, an active hunger cue. Let me look for it next time. And then next time you see it, you're like, ah, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. So practice, you know, makes progress. It reminds me of my first feeding journey with my firstborn. And oh my gosh, like I had no idea. I had no idea how hard it was going to be. I had no idea what the heck I was doing. And when my milk finally came in on the third day, maybe or whatever, I kept feeding baby, but he kept screaming and pulling off the breast and being so upset. And we did this for almost a full night. And I ended up calling my midwives like frantically just out of sorts. And my milk was totally engorged. So even though I was like feeding him and, you know, we were trying to troubleshoot it, nothing was flowing. So he would attach and like latch on, then pull away and like rage for a minute and then go back on. And so through the coaching of my midwives, got in the shower, did all this hot massaging and whatever. And then as soon as the milk started flowing off to sleepy land, he went, you know, and we all tried to recover <laughs> from like a traumatic six or whatever hours of trying to figure this situation out. And it was a hard way to learn that lesson for sure. But we were definitely in that third stage. We were like well beyond. We were in like rage mode at that point. But we figured it out from there. And it was a quick teacher, like a quick lesson on what some of those cues were for me. I don't know how often that happens or if people even know to like look for engorgement initially or how to like rid themselves of it when it shows up, especially in that early like milk coming in stage. But I didn't have that with my second and third because I learned my lesson that time around. Well, I love that story because as you said, you learned the lesson, but you asked, is it common? All these things are so common. I mean, when you are yeah. uh, breastfeeding, there's going to be so many challenges and every day it's going to be a new challenge. So one day it may be engorgement. Another day it may be no milk coming in, right? Too fast letdown, too slow letdown, uh, pain. I mean, there's just on and on. And what you learned from that experience is that your baby is communicating with you. And he was telling you something is wrong, mm -hmm. right? You were saying that he was pulling off of the nipple and screaming and not happy because he, he was hungry, but he couldn't get the milk mm -hmm. because you were engorged. 
And so not only did you learn how to deal with the engorgement for the next feeding or the next time around or the next baby, but you also, this this was the beginning of this communication between you and your baby, because by watching him and you learning and understanding, he's trying to tell me something. This feeding is off for some reason. Let me try to troubleshoot and figure out why. And so it's actually a beautiful relationship. If you think about it, it's frustrating for us in the moment Mm -hmm. because we know this child is is hungry and we want to fix it. We want to fix it immediately. And so in the moment we fix it. But when we have a little bit of time to reflect and take that step back, then we could say, okay, I figured that out. I understood what it was. And really I was listening to him because he was telling me that something was wrong. Something was off. Mm -hmm. Something wasn't working. And that's, a wonderful thing to be able to really internalize as a parent that this is not just about me doing for my baby, but it's also my baby communicating with me and us working together in partnership. So, you know, again, in the moment when it's three o'clock in the, in the morning and you just want to get this feeding going, it's hard to take that step back. But, you know, when mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to do so, it's a good reminder. Yeah. And I didn't have the anxiety that a lot of my clients express about whether baby was getting enough. Like from that good cry that night early on, he lost a little bit of weight. So we did do some tube feeding at the breast to make sure because midwives wanted to keep an eye because he he raged for a good little while while we were figuring ourselves out. But he had a pretty like distinct shift in like milk drunkness when he was full. So I and didn't have that anxiety, but it is very, very common. I feel like especially for breastfed babies where we cannot visibly see the ounces sort of disappearing from a bottle for mothers to be concerned about whether their babies are getting enough milk. And now we've got changing stations that have scales built into them so we can be weighing them sort of pre-feed and post-feed and all of these things that, again, just contribute to like even increasing our anxiety and our fear. But there are some signs that our baby is getting to a state of fullness, right, that we can learn about them. Absolutely. And yes, it's true that these scales, if, if your doctor says you should weigh your baby before and after feed, then do it. But for the average baby who is growing well, it's just not necessary. The the weekly or bi-weekly or bi-monthly uh, visits to the doctor or monthly visits to the doctor are really enough in terms of the weight gain. But that's really the most important thing to be looking at, weight gain. If your baby is gaining weight, then that is the only marker that you really need to be concerned about. In the newborn stage, we want, or the first month, we really want to see around an ounce a day of gain. So yes, if you're weighing every day with your at-home scale, then that's something to look for. But if you're going to the doctor once or twice in that first month, the doctor will be able to weigh in the, in the office and then you could, you'll find out that you're on the right track. But that's the most important thing. We want to see a baby gaining weight at a steady rate on his or her trend, right? It does, there's going to be babies who are in the 25th percentile and there's going to be babies who are in the 95th percentile. And that's normal for each of those babies. And so we don't want to see that 95th percentile baby all of a sudden in one week go down to the 25th percentile. But if that 95th percentile mm-hmm. baby stays in the 90th percentile or approximately, that's great. If the 25th percentile baby stays in the 25th percentile, but is gaining on the curve, that's also great. Babies come in different shapes and sizes, just like all people do. Mm-hmm. So weight gain is really the best clue to look for to make sure that your baby is getting enough to eat. But there's other things to look for. And especially, as you mentioned, you know, when you're breastfeeding, when you're nursing directly from the breast, you do not know how much the baby is drinking. And that does 
induce anxiety because you just don't know, right? A bottle is very easy to see. You put in four ounces, the baby drinks four, three and a half ounces, you know exactly what the baby got. Mm. And I nursed all four of my kids. So I certainly understand that concern. It's very real. Even if you're not dealing with postpartum anxiety or depression, it's just, it's probably one of the most common concerns of new parents, of new nursing parents. Mm -hmm. So besides the weight gain, which is of course primary, um, you want to also look at your baby. So is your baby happy after feedings? Now, again, babies are going to cry, so you're never going to have a happy baby all the time. But you want a baby who is content most of the time because it means that they're not starving. And so that's an important thing to look for. When your baby is nursing or at the breast, look for gulping and swallowing. You can look at the ear or the jaw or the chin or the neck to look for that swallowing motion, to listen to the swallowing motion. That's an important clue to look for. And then, of course, what comes in also has to come out. So diaper contents will be important in the early weeks. So Mm -hmm. we were going to be looking for three to four large poops in the diaper. And that's around for the first six weeks. One of the questions that I get all the time on my social and my DMs when I'm doing coaching is my baby who is three months old isn't pooping every day or doesn't poop three to four times a day. What's going on? Is it safe? And I try to remind parents that these three to four large poops that we want to see is newborn stage. So after six to eight weeks, it's okay if your baby doesn't poop every day. And, you know, parents worry about constipation. Constipation is when the poop is small, round, hard little balls that are hard to pass. If your baby is passing the soft poop that we all know and love in those diapers, even if it's every other day or every third day or even once a week, it's really fine. But in the beginning, it's a great sign to know that our babies are getting enough to eat if we see those three to four poops. And then we also want to look for wet diapers. We want to make sure that our baby is peeing. So six to eight wet diapers is the usual recommendation. We want to make sure that that pee is colorless or very light yellow. If we're looking and seeing very dark yellow urine, then that could be a sign that your baby's not getting enough to eat. So these are pretty overt signs, obviously, right? The weight gain, the diaper contents, and um, the swallowing that we can look for. And it's easier in a way than the hunger cues because they're more concrete. Hmm. And our efforts to control things and reduce anxiety and tension that we as parents can look for pretty concrete diaper contents and behavior and certainly weight gain. Mom rage often leads us to feeling ashamed. But the truth is that our rage doesn't mean we're bad moms. In fact, anger is a sign from our bodies that our needs aren't being met. As moms and therapists, Dr. Ashirin Arim's Psyched Mommy and I understand mom rage. We know that we all lose our cool sometimes. And we also know that with the right tools and strategies in place, those moments happen less often. We've teamed up and combined our years of experience to create All the Rage, Raising Kids with Less Anger and More Connection, a course designed to be your go-to resource for preventing and handling your anger. We dive into what causes your anger, how it impacts your body, how to reframe your thinking, and how to stay calm in triggering moments. And because we are all human, we also include strategies for repairing after we inevitably lose our cool. In honor of Maternal Mental Health Week, you can save $20 on the course with promo RAGE20 this week only. Don't miss out on your chance to save and make a positive change. Head to momwell.com slash rage and save with code rage20. That's momwell.com slash rage, code rage20. Psych. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You mentioned an interesting piece about the swallowing, and it took me a little while to realize that baby would take the breast at any time, hungry or not hungry. And so I quickly became a pacifier that was in a lot of pain and learned to look more for that swallowing. And if we're not swallowing and we're not actively feeding, then we're not on the boob and I need a little chance to get a break, right? So learning that swallowing one for me was really helpful even in just almost like setting some boundaries around being at the boob because I just needed a little space and I needed some time to recover and not feel discomfort. So that was an important one for me to learn, I feel like. That's a great lesson that a lot of moms have to learn, right? And especially, again, we talked about feeding on demand. And a lot of times our babies are demanding to suck. But sucking is different than suckling. Mm. And suckling is when a baby is extracting the milk from the breast. And sucking is when a baby is just sucking for comfort. And some babies will suck on pacifiers and some babies will suck on fingers and other babies will suck on mom. And so it's great for baby because they're getting that sucking comfort. But if it doesn't work for us because we want to create those boundaries, we as moms do have to say, you know, I'll give you a pacifier instead, or here's your thumb. Let me introduce that to you because right now I need a little bit of a break. I am not going to be a human pacifier. Now, some moms love that, right? And that's Mm -hmm. okay too. So that's what I was saying earlier that we have to, as parents, learn what feels right for us and then be able to make that choice. Because Whatever you choose, whether you choose to be that human pacifier or not, your baby will be fine. Mm -hmm. So it's a matter of what feels right for you. And as you were describing your story, you recognize that for yourself, you needed to have that break, that physical and mental break. And so that's what was the right thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think setting those boundaries helped me to preserve our feeding journey together because I did put some of those boundaries in place and those breaks allowed me the sort of energy and commitment to continue with it. So it just obviously depends on each person's feeding journey too. And there's a lot that goes into two people finding the right latch and making all of that work. But having some boundaries around that helped me to commit to feeding, which can be a whole, it's a whole journey. Like we've, we're signed up for depending on how long we want to try to feed for, right? So exactly, it helped me sustain that. Exactly. No, it's it's a great point. And sometimes we fear our babies a little too much, hmm. right? We worry a little bit like, oh, no, if I'm not doing this, then my baby will be upset and I'm going to be a bad parent. And it's not hmm. true. If we understand, again, it's about understanding. If we understand why our babies are seeking the suck, right, whether it's from our boobs or, or from something else, it's a very natural thing. Babies get comfort from sucking, and that's why they like sucking their fingers or pacifier or mom. If we understand what that is, then we also understand that they can get that sucking comfort in many ways, and, it, and we can choose for them, help them choose something that works also for us as parents. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves completely 
to be able to meet all of our baby's needs. There are many ways of meeting baby's needs while being able to create those boundaries for ourselves because a mom who feels better about what she's doing and how she's doing it will be a better parent for her baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as somebody who is very rigid and inflexible as a first-time parent and very concerned about exclusively breastfeeding and avoiding nipple confusion and all of these very, you know, we think right, determined, rigid ways to do things, it took me a long time to relax myself into that role. And a soother was the best thing I ever did in life for myself, for my baby's comfort, for my mental health, like all of the things. And it didn't disrupt our feeding at all. It was perfectly fine. But it took me a little while to get there. And I know that a lot of parents feel that way. Like we feel so motivated and driven to make, you know, those air quotes, like the right decision. But I love your approach in saying that the right decision is not any one thing. It is the combination of things that work for you and your family. And like that is what matters because there are so many different ways to be a parent and to care for an infant and, you know, onwards that it's really whether you are well while you are doing this journey, right? Like while you are parenting. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. If you are not feeling good about it, then how is that helping your baby, right? We want to make sure that you're feeling up to the task, feeling good about it. And that's why I think that information is so important, but digestible information so that parents can learn. So there's a myth about nipple confusion. It's, the studies just don't bear it out that, that babies have a mm-hmm. hard time transitioning or switching back and forth between an artificial nipple and mom's nipple. Yes, some babies have nipple preference, but this confusion word is uh, it's just anxiety provoking. It is. And if you have the information and you understand, well, this is not a a real documented phenomenon. The few studies that have looked at whether there's reduced breastfeeding with babies who take pacifiers or soothers, the data doesn't really bear that out. It's a hypothesis. It happens in a very small amount of babies, but it's not statistically significant. So again, it might be a problem for your particular baby, but if we go in with the fear right away, thinking this is definitely going to happen, that impacts ourselves as moms and dads, that impacts how we approach it. That gives us fear and anxiety. We feel overwhelmed. But if we have the information and it's a way that we understand it, right? It's easy to digest. It's easy to understand and it's actionable. Then we could say, you know what? I'm making a choice for myself. I'm going to choose not to use a pacifier for whatever reason. I've learned the information and I still feel like it's not the right thing Mm -hmm. or I'm going to use it. And I understand that it is the right thing for me and that I shouldn't be worried about this potential for horrible things happening with my baby. Yeah. And ultimately, I think it led me to hold very rigidly to taking on night wakings and feedings by myself and not introducing a bottle, not integrating my partner into the load of feeding because ultimately I felt so responsible. So it had this ripple effect on the load that I had to carry in parenthood not combo feeding or introducing a bottle for a really long time. And then ultimately having a negative impact on my mental health because I wasn't sleeping for crying out loud. So I think that when we set expectations and ideals for ourselves outside of motherhood, before we have any data of what it looks like to be in that role, 
And I think, and it's so important, I reassure and tell clients often that when new data emerges, when we find ourselves in the situation, that ideal or that like rigid expectation for ourselves should always be up for rediscussion or reevaluation as more information about our baby and our journey unfolds, right? And I think that we can get really stuck, but nothing is permanent. You're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to pivot. You're allowed to try new things. And it's a part of it. And it's healthy to do that. A hundred percent. We call it the parenthood journey because it's not this rigid, stuck in one place experience. It's a journey. You're learning, your baby's learning, you're learning about each other. And you're figuring things out as you go. And so that sense of, well, I thought it was going to be this way and therefore it is going to be this way mentality isn't helpful. And, and it's mm. not necessarily true because like, like I explained, right, I, I had a very clear notion of what kind of child I was going to have after I had my first. But when my second came along, I had to throw that all out the window and understand that my expectations for what it means for me to parent a baby is going to be different because this is a different baby. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. having that sense of understanding gives us some freedom a little bit, freedom to know that we can pivot, that we can change, that we're learning alongside our babies and that we may choose one way on day one and then on day five, see it's not working and then say, you know what, let me try something else and our babies will be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's not a failure in any way. It's being creative, it's problem solving, it's being solution oriented, and it's not a reflection that we've done anything wrong. Exactly. We're like almost, we're running out of time, but I so badly want to quickly touch on sleepy cues for babies and then all the other things people can come to Bite Size Parenting for and, and get all the other pieces that we might be missing today. But what kind of clues or indicators do our babies give us that they are sleepy? So this is such an important one because sleep is so important and it's so important to help establish healthy sleep habits as early as we can in that first year and really help our babies learn to sleep. Because the more babies sleep, the better behaved they are, the better they're able to learn and explore, the less crying they'll do. So we really want to be looking for these sleep cues. So again, there's early sleep cues and later sleep cues. Hmm. The early Mm -hmm. sleep cues are going to be a little more difficult to discern early on in your journey with your baby. But once you start hearing about them or learning about them, whether it's, you know, through listening to this podcast or reading it in my book, then you'll be like, aha, I remember seeing that. So some of the ones that seem obvious to us will be red eyes, less focused eyes, glazed over eyes, right? All of a sudden your baby who's been like really focused on you playing just sort of starts to like look glazed. Mm. Um, One of the the ones that I think is so adorable is when their eyebrows get a little red. You'll see that in not all babies, certainly lighter skinned babies for sure, but really babies of all color. And I don't know why. (laughs) I wish I had, I wish there was a study on why eyebrows get red, but that's a great (laughs) and very cute sign. You'll also sometimes notice that your baby's activity decreases. So let's say your baby is batting at a, a toy bar. You might not see them waving their hands as much if they're sucking on a pacifier or if you're feeding them and they start um, reducing the frequency of sucks. They're slowing Mm. down their activity. That's another sign that they're getting tired. Yawning, of course, will be a next stage sleep cue. We'll see that. And it's very cute when the babies are really, really little. Eye rubbing also, let's say a middle of the road sleep cue. Babies who are older and if they have hair, they might start pulling at their hair, rubbing their ear, pulling their ear. Mm -hmm. Another sleepy cue will be finger sucking, right? Sucking a thumb, let's say. 
But we talked earlier about how this is also a hunger cue. And that's another challenge for us as parents to be able to say, oh, this finger sucking is sleeping, a sleepy cue and not a hunger cue. Hmm. How would we know that? Well, I just fed the baby an hour ago and there's no way that she could be hungry right now. And look, I'm also seeing her yawning or her rubbing her eyes. So this must, this finger sucking is not a hunger finger sucking. It's a sleepy finger sucking. Mm, mm-hmm. And then once we're at the late stage sleepy cues, it's going to be things like fussiness in older babies, clinginess maybe, and then of course crying. And crying again is a very late stage sleepy cue. And it's we ideally would like to get our babies into sleep before they're crying. Because when it's it's much harder for a baby to fall asleep, for even us to help a baby fall asleep when they're crying. And I'm talking about certainly little babies, right? And what we like to do is be able to get our babies into the bassinet or the crib when they are sleepy, maybe even half asleep, but not fully, fully asleep and not hysterical crying. It's just going to be harder for them to be able to settle down when they're crying really hard. And what happens is if we don't get our babies in when we see these sleep cues, Um, then we run the risk of an overtired baby and it it spirals. Mm -hmm. An overtired baby makes it harder for that baby to fall asleep the next nap or the next night interval. So an overtired baby becomes a more overtired baby, which then becomes a more overtired baby. So sleep begets sleep and overtiredness begets overtiredness. And so we want to break that cycle by looking for these sleep cues, learning them and finding them and watching for them and seeing them earlier in the stage when possible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of so many conversations I've had with moms about sleep-wake windows. And one of the things I find when we are struggling, as we do when we're sleep-deprived and everything is changing in our life and all of these things, is becoming very rigid around like scheduling sleep. And I think that we run the risk of not attuning to the cues when we're trying to adhere to like what we think a baby's schedule should be based on like their age and development. And then it can lead to this like real frustrated relationship with sleep. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. Like we've been taught that our sleep depends on baby's sleep. So we're so focused on figuring it out so that we can get some rest when I actually advocate for us to break the two out and we can make a plan for maternal sleep that doesn't hinge on when baby sleeps. Like we call in the community and the family members and plan for mom's sleep independently of that. But I think that there is this model or I do see a lot online, this tracking of the wake sleep windows and using that as a marker. Do you think that plays into the cues? Is that a factor here when it comes to sleep or how do we manage those? It absolutely is, but it's about finding that delicate balance. So I'm all for routines in a baby's day. I have guides that help parents establish and adapt to certain schedules that work for them. And routines are really important for babies and for toddlers. It really gives them a sense of security and limits, and it helps schedule their day in a way that is comforting for them. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. one side of it. I do not, I'm not a big advocate of rigid schedules. It has to be a flexible schedule. And the same thing with wake windows. Wake windows are really helpful because it gives you a framework to understand what my baby might be doing or should be doing at this age and developmental stage in terms of how long they can stay awake at that particular age. And I, and I have wake windows in my book, Bite Size Parenting. I have it in each chapter because it's month by month. 
I have it in the overview section of each chapter so you can quickly find what is the wake window for my four-month-old. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the wake window for a four-month-old, you'll see that it's there's a wide range. Yeah. It's 90 to 120 minutes. Yeah. And so that, by definition, doesn't allow for rigidity because some babies may only be able to stay awake for 90 minutes and other babies can stay awake for two hours. And so that's a pretty wide range when you're talking about a four, five, six-month-old. Mm-hmm. And so what I always tell parents is that it's a combination of both. It's finding that balance between looking for those sleep cues and understanding what your baby developmentally can do. So if you are in that 90 to 120 minutes, let's say for a four-month-old, or even if you're at 85 minutes or 127 minutes, and you are also seeing those sleepy cues, that is a signal to you, okay, this makes sense. This is approximately how long my baby should be staying awake at this age, and I'm seeing that yawning or the red eyes or the the reduced activity. Ah, this is another clue for me. So I look at wake windows as another clue, a broad framework, uh, but it's Mm -hmm. part and parcel, hand in hand with looking at your baby and the activity of the day. And it's also important to remember that, again, babies aren't robots. So let's say your baby took their first morning nap and it's longer than usual. So that wake window may be a little longer and the next nap may be a little shorter. Maybe the last nap of the day is shorter than usual. So maybe bedtime is going to be pushed up 15 minutes to account for that. Maybe baby woke up really early in the morning and then the next nap has to be much sooner because the wake window is not sustainable. So every day is going to be slightly different. So rigid schedules aren't going to work, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. but flexible schedules, understanding all the pieces of information, all the inputs that you're getting from your baby, from the information that you've learned about wake windows, coupling that or putting that all together and then coming out with your destination, which is, okay, I'm seeing my baby fall asleep. It's within this wake window. Even though I thought the nap was going to be two o'clock and it's only 1.45, I think I'm going to put my baby in for a nap right now. Hmm. Yeah. And I would describe that as like knowing the rhythms and routines without having it like tethered to an amount of time that is so concrete or inflexible, right? And I think that that's really important to pair those cues with that sort of developmental understanding for this time that we're on two naps or three naps or, you know, early on there is very little structure. But I think that it's important to take both into context and like, especially when they're dropping those naps, you put them down and like, they're clearly raring to go and have zero desire to sleep. It becomes very frustrating to wrestle with the reality of the cue, like the cues that the baby's giving you, right? Yeah. And if we do stretch those, so just like, I remember probably every parent has this feeling of like, don't you dare fall asleep in the car right now. We are five minutes from home and you're going to mess your whole nap up. So you're like putting on a song and dance to try and just like keep them awake. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> stretch that window out so that they can have a solid nap and you can actually eat your lunch when you get home or whatever. So there is room for that flexibility and it won't totally throw off the whole rest of the day's events. So thank you so much. I feel like, oh my gosh, I could keep you here all day long. I appreciate so much your time and including us in your press and your talks for the release of Bite Size Parenting. What an exciting time it is for you. Where can people find you online? Where can they find the book? So the book is available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can find it on my website, SharonMaisel.com. And I'm on Instagram every day, posting new infographics and information, doing Q&As in my stories. That's at Sharon Maisel. So, um, and I answer my DMs. So uh, if you have questions, check it out there. And I also offer coaching and courses and e-guides. And so lots of parenting resources. 
We'll make sure to link all of those things as well in the show notes so people can easily click through and find you. And thanks again. Congrats on the book. Appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to share this all with you. Since this conversation with Sharon, I've been thinking back to my early days postpartum. In many ways, I was the perfect storm for postpartum anxiety, a mixture of being a people pleaser and a perfectionist. And I know that so many of us have been conditioned to be the same way. So is it really any wonder that we feel so much pressure to make these perfect decisions as moms? If I could go back and tell myself anything, it would be to put my phone down, stop Googling and researching, and tune into what my baby is communicating with me. I would put limits on the amount of time I spent over-researching every little decision, and I would look inward and build trust with myself so that I could develop more confidence in my parenting ability. That's what I want you to really take away from this episode, how to cut through all the noise, trust in yourself, remain flexible and adaptive, and remember that perfectionism is not the goal and is not what makes us a good mom. The rules and recommendations we hear are usually guidelines, and we're the ones who know ourselves and our babies. The more we can learn to identify what's going on with our baby and respond to those signs, the more we can trust ourselves to make the decisions that feel right for us and our family. I hope those of you who are listening in the throes of early motherhood can take some comfort knowing that you can learn what your baby needs, and you can make the decisions that feel right for you without listening to every overwhelming piece of advice that is out there. It's hard to break away from the pressure of perfectionism or the idea that we should naturally know how to make all the best decisions for our baby. But parenting is a learned skill. And the more we trust ourselves, the more confidence we gain. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode or what you would like to hear more of in the future. Send me a DM and let me know what would be helpful to you. And if you're struggling right now, please know that you are not alone. And you also don't have to go through it by yourself. Our mom therapists know what you're going through and are here to support you every step of the way. Head to momwell.com booking to book a free virtual consult today. That's momwell.com booking. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place next week, where I'm being joined by Dr. Sandra Dalton to discuss the seven different types of rest. If you're constantly on the self-care hamster wheel and never truly feel rested, you don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for resources or links from today's show, or you need a refresh on anything we've talked about, visit our show notes. You can find the link in the episode description, or you can head directly to momwell.com slash learning center. To join the MomWell email list and be the first one to know about new episode drops, insider info, or freebies, head to momwell.com slash newsletter. Join me next week. Until then, remember that you have to be well to mom well.